This is Everyday Wellness, a podcast dedicated to helping you achieve your health and wellness goals and provide practical strategies that you can use in your real life. And now, here is your host, nurse practitioner Cynthia Thurlow. Today, I'm delighted and excited to have Dr. David Jockers is a doctor of natural medicine and runs one of the most popular natural health websites in drjockers.com, which has gotten over 1 million monthly visitors. Amazing. And his work has been seen on popular media, such as Dr. Oz and the Hallmark Home and Family. He's also the author of the best-selling book, The Keto Metabolic Breakthrough and The Fasting Transformation. He's a world-renowned expert in the area of ketosis, fasting, inflammation, and functional nutrition. And he's also the host of the popular Dr. Jockers functional nutrition podcast. Welcome. It's so great to have you on the podcast. Thanks so much, Cynthia. It's really an honor. I appreciate all the work that you're doing. And uh, also it's great to have you on my podcast as well. Absolutely. You know, two fasting experts in, in one place is really hugely beneficial. And I would love for you to kind of talk about what brought you to fasting. I mean, I love everyone's stories as it pertains to, you know, utilizing the strategy. Some people have been doing it for far longer than I have, but I always find the background is particularly interesting when listeners are trying to kind of put all this together, you know, your expertise and what's kind of brought you into this fasting journey. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, in my early 20s, I was a personal trainer. And, you know, I was studying exercise, nutrition, science. I was eating six meals a day because I'm thin. I'm an ectomorph. So I've got, <laughs> mm-hmm. you, you are as well. So we mm-hmm. have thin bones. We tend to be narrow shouldered, mm-hmm. right? And I wanted to, you know, obviously have the most muscle mass I could. So I was eating six meals a day. Um, in fact, in my nutrition course, I think I was 20 years old when I took this nutrition course, we, we um, counted up all the calories we ate in a day. And I was like 5,500 calories. And I would have a protein shake before I went to bed. And then I'd wake up in the morning and have like a big bowl of oatmeal or something mm-hmm. like that. And I thought I had to do that in order to maintain my muscle mass that I would like literally wither away if I didn't do that. And all of a sudden it caught up with me and I developed irritable bowels. So I would have mm-hmm. extreme cramping and bloating and to the point where like, I mean, there were times where I just had to call into work or whatever I was doing because I was just in so much pain, constipation, diarrhea. So my gut would just go in and out. Like I would have some good days and then some really bad days. And it was just not consistent. And then over about a two-year period, I ended up losing about 30 pounds. And I was trying to eat as much as I could, exercise. And I just started wasting away. And actually at the time I was going through graduate school, I just started at chiropractic college. And I read a book called The Maker's Diet by Jordan Rubin. And in that book, he talked about, you know, making a lot of diet changes. And there were people in my school because chiropractic school tends to grab, certainly not everybody there is into health, but I mean, there's tends to gravitate, you know, more health-minded people. And so one of my friends there was into Dr. Mercola and Dr. Mercola's website. This is back in 2004, 2005. So it was was new stuff, Paul Check, And they were talking about going grain-free and I read the maker's diet and he talked about ancient grains and sprouted grains. And so I went, I experimented, I took grains out, I took out, I was a vegetarian at the time. And so I I started eating grass-fed meat. And unfortunately we had like a whole foods right next to us. We can get this stuff. We were ordering from us wellness meats. And so I started making these changes, taking out refined oils, grass-fed meats, reducing grains and sugars. Basically I went on a lower carb diet. This was kind of like the early advent of the paleo diet. There was no term for the paleo diet. I'd never heard of it, at least at that period of time, we called it the healing diet. And so we went on this healing diet, no grain, you know, it was grain free, basically lots of fermented foods, 
We had, you know, grass-fed meats, things like that. And I got a lot better and it was really helping. And then all of a sudden I noticed when I didn't eat breakfast and I had 7 a.m. classes. So it was really common. I would go from go to school from like 7 a.m. to 5 p.m. I lived on campus. And I would just, I had this gallon water jugs and I would just drink water in the morning. And I just noticed I felt a lot better. And it was surprising to me because I always thought I had to eat breakfast. And I just felt significantly better when I didn't do that. And I started, it was interesting, Cynthia, was I actually started really gaining muscle mass back. In fact, I got in my best physical shape. I was about 24, 25 at this point, 2005, 2006. And I gained the weight back, got up to about 165 pounds, which is where I'm at today. Felt absolutely amazing. And I would fast and drink like a gallon of water between the time I woke up and noon. And, and I would typically fast till like two o'clock in the afternoon. And then all of a sudden I would get really hungry and I would eat from like 2.30 to seven o'clock or so. And, you know, so I had this time restricted feeding window and people would ask me because I, they saw me gain weight and muscle mass quickly. And they were like, what are you doing? And I'm like, I'm drinking a gallon of water between the time I wake up and noon. And I thought it was the water because nobody had ever told me about intermittent fasting. In fact, all my classes, I was taking exercise physiology courses. I have a master's degree in that. My PhD that uh, oversaw my studies, she was always like, no, no, you always have to eat before you work out. And I was doing fasted workouts. You know, so everything I was doing was flying in the face of the science I was being taught, but I just knew it worked. And I just continued doing that. And it wasn't until about 2009 that I actually heard the term intermittent fasting. And I'm like, what is that? I'm like, oh, that's exactly what I'm doing. And so I started getting into the literature with that. And, you know, it's something I've been practicing now for, gosh, 16 years. It absolutely revolutionized my life. And I've seen it work so well for so many people. I love hearing how, you know, it started with this nutrition piece and then, you know, this intrinsic connection to your body and what resonated despite being taught otherwise, you know, I've heard statistics that typically in university level teaching that data is usually 20 years behind. So is it any surprise that, you know, what I learned in my nursing and nurse practitioner programs, despite being at a big teaching institution was very aligned with the USDA, you know, guidelines, food guide pyramid back when it was before predating my plate, which is now what's kind of propagated, you know, breakfast being the most important meal of the day. But I'm so grateful that you intrinsically resonated with following a path that may not have been as aligned with what you were being taught, but actually helped you heal yourself. And I think that's so critically important. I always share with listeners that I went gluten-free When I turned 40, that was kind of like my first dipping in the pond. I'd always eaten really healthy. You know, I was the person that was drinking a protein shake, going to the gym at 5 a.m. and drinking one, heading home before going to see patients in clinic or the hospital. And I remember, you know, when I went gluten-free, that was like the first indication that, oh my gosh, my psoriasis went away that I got after being treated for Lyme, being on antibiotics for six weeks that that was kind of what got the process started for me to make the association that our food is probably the most valuable uh, thing that we put in our bodies or, you know, what we're exposed to can have such a profound impact on how healthy we are otherwise. But for anyone that's listening, that's curious, perhaps doesn't realize there's some really cool mechanisms as they pertain to intermittent fasting that can help you build muscle. I think it's this misnomer that people believe you have to be eating six meals a day. You have to be consuming massive amounts of calories to build muscle. And yet there's this really, there's several key mechanisms that are activated while fasted that can actually potentiate, you know, muscle growth. And I'd love for you to touch on that. Yeah, for sure. You know, I'm a huge fan of fasting and I'm all about maintaining muscle mass. In fact, literally like right before we're doing this interview, I just had a big upper body workout 
And I always work out faster. I just feel the best. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't always recommend that for everybody. However, there are great benefits to it. Like you were talking about, one of the benefits is that you actually, when you're in a fasted state and your insulin levels are low, you release more human growth hormone. And so growth hormone is your quintessential anti-aging hormone. So it helps your body. It puts your body into an anabolic state from the perspective that you maintain lean body mass, right? So it turns on fat burning, but at the same time, it helps preserve your lean body, your muscle, your bone tissue. So, you know, a lot of women as they age, for example, they end up with osteoporosis, osteomalacia, bone loss. And a lot of that's due to a lack of human growth hormone stimulation. Insulin resistance plays a really big role with that. And so, you know, you really are able to maintain that and actually exercising when you have elevated growth hormone, you just feel amazing. You get just a greater anabolic drive is what, what it's called in the literature, where basically you're able to create a endocrine environment, a hormonal environment that allows you to put on more muscle mass. Now, after exercise, it's a really good time to fuel your body, right? So you also need to feast and famine, right? So you can't just fast your way to more muscle, right? But it's part of the process. You know, I've heard it termed like cocking a slinky, for example. So we have this genetic pathway called mTOR, mammalian target of rapamycin, which I'm sure you've talked about and your listeners are familiar with. And when that's elevated chronically, we associate it with chronic disease and accelerated aging, but really it's a growth, it's a molecule that signals growth. And so it's elevated in kids, for example, because kids are growing fast and for bodybuilders because they're really trying to put on a lot of muscle. Now for the average individual, we want to suppress mTOR the majority of the time but we actually, if we want to maintain lean body mass, we actually want to increase it for short bouts of time. Short periods of time is really good to, to increase it. So exercise when you're in a fasted state, for example. So fasting naturally kind of primes the slinky. So you think about a slinky on a step. If you want to push that slinky in and have it project itself up to the next step, you know, you've got to really prime it. And by priming it, I mean like pushing down on it. So fasting helps push down on mTOR. So it suppresses mTOR, but it also creates an environment where it's actually giving that slinky more potential energy, right? So more potential energy for your body to increase and build lean body mass. And then you, another thing that does that is exercise, right? So exercise has a dual effect where it inhibits mTOR, but also activates mTOR. It's interesting. And so it's naturally catabolic exercise, meaning that it's like breaking down tissue. Like in fact, if you looked at, you know, somebody's C-reactive protein right after they got a big workout in, it would look like they had a heart attack, right? Or if they ran a 5K or even a marathon, it's like a massive heart attack. Of course, we know that that's artificial. It's just muscle breakdown process that happens when you exercise intensely, your body clears it up, right? So your body adapts to the exercise, creates more greater resilience to it, endogenously produce antioxidants like glutathione increase, things like that, that allow your body to adapt to the exercise, but it's naturally catabolic. But at the same time, we also think about exercise and we think about building muscle, right? So if we're going to do strength training, we got to really, you know, if I'm going to build my chest, for example, I've got to do, you know, some chest presses that have a decent amount of weight to really over, you know, it's called progressive overload. The term is to overload my muscle tissue to where those fibers are pushed to the point where they are stressed to the point where they have to adapt and get stronger and bigger. And so that's basically what happens. So we suppress mTOR, but at the same time, we create this massive potential energy 
that then once we fuel our body and giving our body the right nutrients it needs, particularly protein, you know, minerals, B vitamins, lots of different things like that, you know, then we're going to adapt and get stronger muscles. As long as we're in a calorie, slightly slight calorie surplus, or at least a calorie, you know, a break-even calorie point. And you and I are both not huge on calories in, calories out. I don't watch, like I don't count my calories. I eat till I'm satiated. But the reality is if you're restricting your calories and your goal is to build lean body mass, you know, it's not going to work, right? So you got to eat till you're satiated. So that's really the key there. And you got to eat enough protein as well, right? And so ideally, so at least basically about half a gram per uh, pound of body weight, at least. So if I weigh 165 pounds right now, I should be eating at least minimum like 80 to 90 grams of protein on a daily basis to build muscle. But I can eat it in a compressed eating window where I'm eating it in, let's say, two meals in like a six-hour window or something like that, or maybe an eight-hour window, or you know, even tightening it up to a four-hour window and maximize the amount of growth hormone release during my fasting window, which primes the anabolic environment for even greater muscle tissue development. So it's really interesting how that all works. Oh, and I love that explanation. And one of the things that I really emphasize is how protein deficient most of us are. I had Dr. Gabrielle Lyon on last year, and it was one of the things that she was really emphasizing was that, you know, most people, you know, women in particular do a really sometimes crummy job. They're getting 40 to 60 grams of protein in a day. And it's really no way to help maintain muscle. And one of the things that happens naturally, you know, and it accelerates as we get older is something called sarcopenia, which is this muscle loss with aging, which is why strength training is so critical why getting enough protein in to help break down into amino acids is so critical. You know, that high quality sleep, stress management are super, super important. And for anyone that's listening, I remind just about everyone, most, if not all of us are not eating enough protein. It doesn't mean that you go from hundred grams to 150 overnight. It may be that you eat 10 more grams and you just make a purposeful effort. Maybe you're not having four ounces of steak, maybe at six, And much to your point, I don't believe in counting calories. I know sometimes that triggers people in really uncomfortable ways, but I know that you're very aligned with that principle. And when you start eating for satiety, it's amazing how nourished you feel. Like I was talking to my teenage boys who have a never ending pit. I mean, it doesn't matter how much they eat. They're always (laughs) hungry an hour later. And my boys are very active. And I was telling them if I sit down and have a good size steak, I almost can't, I mean, generally I can't finish my meat. But I remind them that that's the nourishing good side of feeling satiated. Whereas if I sat down and had a bowl of rice or a bowl of pasta, which I never do, but if I did, I would not feel as satiated and I would continue eating and I would probably overeat and I probably wouldn't register it because our body recognizes macronutrients in different ways. And that's why, you know, when people are, if they're aiming to put muscle mass on, or they're aiming to lean out or whatever, you know, changing their body composition, how critically important that nutrition piece is. I know when I was hospitalized two years ago and I lost 15 pounds and most of it was my muscle. I remember it was like three months off of not doing any fasting whatsoever. And then I was slowly cleared to start lifting again. And it took me about six months to put 10 Mm -hmm. pounds of muscle on, but that was with fasting. So it is possible even for women. Yeah, for sure. And you, you got to get the calories in and I'm, my body really does best on a high protein diet. So I'm typically consuming, I weigh about 165 pounds. And what I do is I work out, I actually do weightlifting five days a week. And on those days, I'm typically consuming, now I'm not counting calories. I'm not counting protein grams, but if I were to count, 
I'm probably consuming somewhere between 140 to up to 200 grams of protein on mm -hmm. those days. And I just feel my best when mm -hmm. I do that. Now, one day a week, I do 20 to 24 hours. It's usually closer to 24 hours where I do basically no protein, right? I'm basically just drinking water. I usually fast from lunch on Wednesday to lunch on Thursday. And then I do a workout like right before that. So I go through a period also where I do an extended period of time without the protein. And what that does is really amplifies the amount of autophagy that's taking place because protein as well as carbohydrates will basically cause an increase. Well, carbohydrates cause an increase in insulin and insulin will reduce your ability to go through autophagy. And then protein will also reduce your ability to go through autophagy. And autophagy is basically when your body's breaking down old cellular debris. And one of the main mechanisms of autophagy is you need more amino acids, right? So if you're getting the amino acids from your diet, you're not, you don't need to break them down from inside the cell. So I do this on a weekly basis and I feel great. Actually, I feel like my best, I get my best heart rate variability scores during my sleep overnight when I do this. And that's why I like to fast from lunch to lunch. When I do it from dinner to dinner, I don't notice as good of an increase in the heart rate variability. So I notice if I have a nice, good size lunch and then fast the rest of the evening, and then into the morning, like in the morning, I'm not even hungry. Mm -hmm. I might have a little bit of hunger in the evening. Like when my family's eating dinner, I might just kind of feel it because I'm used to eating dinner. So my, it's a condition response. It's a ghrelin release, which is your hunger hormone comes out when you're used to eating a meal. So sometimes I'm like, oh yeah, this would be nice to eat. But then I just remind myself, you know, I'm going to sleep so much better. I'm going to feel great tomorrow. And, it, and then I just, I'm able to do it. It's easy. And then I usually break my fast at lunch the next day. And you know what? Very rarely am I actually even hungry when I break my fast. And so I break my fast after my workout at lunch the next day. And that, you know, 20 to 24 hour fast really amplifies autophagy, allows my body to break down all these damaged cells. I replace all these damaged mitochondria, for example, that are in all of my cells, you know, returning over bad muscle and replacing it with good muscle tissue, really healing my gut. You know, there's a rat study that's shown that 24 hour fast, you see a significant rise in stem cell production in your intestinal epithelium because your intestinal cells are some of the fastest cells to turn over. We literally replace our intestinal lining every three to five days. So stem cells are these young embryonic cells that are incredibly stress resilient. So even though that study, they haven't actually done the study on humans. So they've only done it on rats. So, uh, you know, it, we can't necessarily fully correlate it to humans. However, what we can say is that you're going to get significant repair, right? And there's a lot of, you know, just case study examples of significant repair in your intestinal epithelium that takes place when you're doing some sort of like a longer fast, right? And you could certainly do like a three or five day fast, but you know, that's not something you're going to be able to do on a weekly basis, unless you're very overweight, you know, for somebody like you or me, most of the audience doing something like a 20 to 24 hour fast on a weekly basis is realistic. As long as you are consuming a lot of nutrients on your other days, right. Consuming, you know, good quality foods, and you're going to get significant health benefits when you do that. At some point we've all been sold a big fat lie. It's called the protein misconception. So starting in the 1980s, we all believe that more protein equated to more muscle growth. And I'm here to tell you it's a big misconception. This has a great deal to do that our body can only absorb protein that's broken down into smaller building blocks called amino acids. 
It doesn't matter if you're consuming 30 grams of protein or 300 grams of protein. If you don't have a sufficient supply of enzymes to digest the protein, your muscles will ultimately be unable to use these as vital building blocks. That's why it's crucial you take a high quality digestive enzyme. The one I trust and use myself is called Masszymes by Bi Optimizers. Masszymes is a full spectrum enzyme formula with more protease than any other commercially available product with five different forms of protease. Plus, it contains all the other key enzymes you need for optimal digestion. If you're experiencing bloating, gas, or digestive distress, a contributing factor can be that your body is no longer producing as much digestive enzymes. And you can try Masszymes today risk-free. They have a 365-day full money-back guarantee and is the gold standard in the industry. Go to biooptimizers.com slash Cynthia. That's B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com slash Cynthia and use promo code Cynthia10 for 10% off of any order. Again, that's promo code Cynthia10 for 10% off any order. Have you guys heard about a bioactive whole food on the market with 5,000 published research studies backing it? When my oldest son needed to go on antibiotics a few months ago, I discovered Armra colostrum and the benefits for him and his recovery from being on antibiotics have been instrumental in me now recommending this to my dairy non-sensitive patients and clients. Armra's colostrum strengthens immunity, ignites metabolism, fortifies gut health, promotes hair growth and skin radiance, and powers fitness performance and recovery. My son has mentioned to me over and over again how great his gut feels, how he has improved his digestion and gut function as well. Colostrum is a rich, exclusive source of immunoglobulins or antibodies that optimize our immune defense even during cold and flu season. And we know that mucosal barriers house over 80% of our body's immune cells, including including the antibodies IgG and SIG-A. And these immunoglobulins bind and intercept harmful particles like viruses, bacteria, and toxins, blocking them from crossing into the barriers into our bloodstream. And armrest colostrum contains the highest levels of SIG-A and IgG to ensure your most fortified first line of protection. It's sustainably sourced, and it's important to know that you want to mix colostrum only with cold liquids or foods or dry scoop it into your mouth. This is also great for the oral microbiome. And we've worked out a special offer for my everyday wellness community where you can receive 15% off your first order. Go to tryarmra.com slash Cynthia15 or enter Cynthia15 to get 15% off your first order. That's T-R-Y-A-R-M-R-A.com slash Cynthia15. You definitely want to check it out. I think it's interesting that there's a great deal of fear about not eating because we're an overnourished culture. And that's, you know, a byproduct again of this antiquated dogma that we need to be eating every two to three hours. We have to have mini meals and snacks and all this other, you know, kind of 
literally garbage Mm -hmm. and how critically important it is as individuals that we find a system that works for us. I do a 24 hour fast every week and I usually will couple it with, and I hate the term feast because that gives this connotation that you're overeating. What I typically do is have one day where I don't really fast. I might have Mm -hmm. a 12 hour feeding window and I'll probably up my protein, have three meals instead of two in my window. And then I usually roll into a day of not eating at all. And my whole family thinks it's hilarious, but I remind them, I'm like, the one thing you have to think about is autophagy is like your body's taking out the garbage. And the only way that our body has the ability to go in and take care of this, because it requires so much energy is to do it while we're not eating much like when we're sleeping, we have the glymphatic system. That is this waste recycling process in our brains that is so critically important and why sleep is so helpful. So let's pivot a little bit and talk about What are some of the things, what are some of the strategies that we can do that can boost autophagy? So again, the waste recycling process, we talked about extended fasting. What are some of the other things that we can do that can help boost this incredible, you know, byproduct of fasting? Yeah, for sure. So, you know, the way I think about it is our body goes through either a building phase or a cleansing phase, right? And I consider autophagy as kind of the main mechanism that's taking place during the cleansing phase. Building would be, you know, really led by the hormone insulin Mm -hmm. and activated by mTOR. You know, we talked about that as well. Those are kind of building hormones and building pathways of our body. And it's important to build and it's important to cleanse. And we need to cycle through those. Now, when we're young, we're going to be building a lot, right? So we're young, we're kids, we're growing fast, we're building pregnancy. And my wife's pregnant right now as we speak. That's a building phase. However, after we get to like 25 or so, you know what, we really need to prioritize cleansing. And so I think about it like this to simplify it for people. The time between your first meal and your last meal of the day is your building phase. So if you eat at you know 7 a.m. and you finish your dinner at 7 p.m., it's 12 hours. And during that period of time, you're eating meals and you are you know activating a lot of building mechanisms, right? Cell division, growth, things like that, fat storage. And so then the time between your last meal and your first meal is your cleansing phase. And so now you're going to start to really allow the liver to detoxify. You know, you're going to give the gut some rest, uh, allow it to move better. And then also at the same time, you're going to activate autophagy. So as people age, I recommend they do something like a two to one cleansing the building phase at least a few times a week. That would mean a 16 hour fast with an eight hour eating window. So as opposed to like the 12 to 12, where you're you know eating from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m., 12 hour window, and then you fast from seven to seven, that's a one-to-one ratio, okay? Now my kids do that, right? And they're in a building phase. For somebody that's an adult, you don't need to do that, at least not, you know, you may, it depends on the individual, but you don't need to do that on a daily basis. In fact, that's not gonna be healthy. You should be implementing at least a few days a week where you're doing, something like a 16 hour fast and an eight hour eating window, okay? And then you can even compress it even further depending on how your body responds to that where you're able to do like an 18-6. So now you're getting three times the amount of cleansing to building, okay? And depending on how your body responds hormonally, how much excess body fat you have, how active you are, how much stress you're under, how you're sleeping, you can make alterations in that but you should really be prioritizing. It's just really a mental concept to prioritize more time between your last meal and your first meal than you know eating throughout the day. So that's where it starts, intermittent fasting. Then what we can do is further suppress or keep insulin down 
you know, insulin again is a building hormone. And so when insulin's elevated, you're not going to be able to go through autophagy and cell cleansing. So we can do that when we do eat as well by eating foods that are less insulogenic, meaning foods that are not going to produce as much insulin. So typically it's going to be a lower carbohydrate diet, ketogenic style template where we're consuming higher amounts of fats, high amounts of protein, very low amounts of sugar and starch. Okay. We can still consume fiber. If your body responds well to fiber, you can still consume, you know, a lot of plant fiber. There's a lot of non-starchy vegetables, broccoli, cauliflower, asparagus, you know, they're all very low carbohydrate. So you can get plenty of nutrients and vegetables in by doing that. There's even fruits like olives and avocados that are lower in starchy carbohydrates and uh, high in healthy fats. So we're trying to consume a template like that. And that's going to kind of further suppress you know, basically or further suppress insulin and keep autophagy moving. Even while we're in our building window, we're going to get some level of autophagy just because we are keeping our insulin down. And we're going to really turn on autophagy faster when we get into that cleansing window because our insulin's already suppressed. So low carb diet, fasting, beyond that exercise is really important. So regular exercise, particularly when I think about exercise, I break it into two classifications. One is movement Movement is very anti-inflammatory and very good for your brain, your lymphatic system. And that's just like something at a very low intensity, walking throughout the day, for example, just staying active throughout the day, walking around, could be playing with your kids, could be like some light dancing or, you know, some recreational activity. Exercise is something you're doing at a high intensity, something that really puts you in a state where you are in an anaerobic state. So you're breathing heavy, you're in an oxygen debt. So now you're having to recover and breathe heavy. Okay. Or something that's really challenging your muscles. So strength training. So you want to do something like that, at least I would say two to three times a week, where you put your body in this oxygen debt for at least 10 to 15 minutes at least twice a week, and ideally maybe three or four times a week, depending on you, right? So some people that are under more stress, maybe have more chronic illness, they may not be able to do that. They may even just start with movement, right? And doing movement regularly, and then kind of gradually progressing to where they're able to do some sort of higher intensity exercise. So that's another way to stimulate autophagy. We already talked about some of the mechanisms there. Then really prioritizing sleep, right? You talked about the glymphatic system. That's really when our brain detoxifies. So sleep is super critical for autophagy, for cleansing. You know, it's really, again, when we drain our brains, we get rid of you know, just a toxic buildup in our brain. We help reset our neurotransmitter balance during that period of time. You know, there's a lot of powerful mechanisms that take place in our brain while we're sleeping. So prioritizing good sleep is super critical. So that's important. Keeping stress under control for overwhelmed by stress, no amount of fasting is going to help us, right? So ultimately we got to keep stress under control. It needs to be a level of stress that we can adapt to. We don't actually want a period of no stress ever, right? Unless we're, you know, in a really bad state and we need to heal, you know? And so all of us actually thrive under stress, once we get to a certain level of health and fitness, we thrive under stress. We need a certain amount of stress. Exercise is a stress, for example, but we don't want to be overwhelmed by stress. So good recovery is critical, but keeping stress under control is important to have an environment that sets us up for autophagy. And then we can utilize herbs. What's interesting is there are certain polyphenols in different plants that help to activate autophagy. For example, green tea has epigalactic attachins, right? EGCG 
which helps stimulate autophagy. Coffee has chlorogenic acid, caffeic acid, which helps stimulate autophagy. So both of these things help to activate the mitochondria within our cells and they increase the amount of AMPK. So they're basically like a cellular stressor in our system. And they're what we call a hormetic stressor, which is a positive stress. So most people, when they think about stress, they think it's bad. Okay. But actually stress, small bouts of stress make us stronger, more resilient. So believe it or not, these plant compounds actually have, they're actually stressors that our body then adapts to. And part of the way it adapts is it increases the amount of cellular cleaning and autophagy that take place. So drinking coffee in the morning while you fast, as long as you respond well to it. And I always caution that, you know, I think about coffee. I think about, I mean, it's a performance enhancement tool. So when you drink coffee, you should feel great for like the next three or four hours. You should feel amazing. You should have more energy. You should have better brain function. If you feel like you've got more cravings two hours later, if you feel like you get up and then drop, if you have more anxiety, you're not responding well to it. And there are certain hacks, you know, for some people, there's mycotoxins in their coffee or their tea. That can be another factor. So they may have mold toxins on them. They may be reacting to, they may have too much caffeine. Okay. Like for me, I can only handle small amounts of caffeine at a time. Now I can do it for like multiple doses, but if I have too much caffeine at once, I don't feel good, right? And so I can usually do about 50 milligrams, which is about the average cup of coffee is somewhere between 100 to 200 milligrams. So it'd be like, for me, like half to a quarter cup of coffee. And that's about all I can do or else I don't feel as good. Now, I also add magnesium. So coffee, even though it contains magnesium, it can also deplete a little bit of magnesium. And most of us are going through stages where we are, you know, throughout the day, it's kind of like hydration. Mm -hmm. We're constantly going through magnesium. So nobody's like magnesium sufficient. You are going throughout the day, just like hydration. You're going through periods where you're well hydrated and dehydrated. Like at night when we're sleeping, we're breathing out water vapor. We wake up in the morning, we're dehydrated, no matter how much water we drank the day before. So you've got to rehydrate. It's kind of the same with magnesium. We need to continually be getting magnesium into our system. It's one of the key supplements that I'll recommend for people. And that can make a big difference. I'll actually, we'll put that in coffee and that can really help. And then also actually a little bit of salts can actually help with coffee and, and tea, right? Green tea, just like a little touch of good quality sea salt in there to get a little bit more minerals. That can also be very, very helpful with that. But you know, in general, if you drink coffee or you drink tea, you should feel really good. So those things are great. There's other herbs as well. Like for example, citrus bergamot is another one that um, helps stimulate autophagy. And that's an Earl Grey tea, for example. You have carvacrol, which is in oregano, basil, thyme, you know, all those Mediterranean herbs. They're great. They're rich in, in carvacrol. I'm pretty sure I'm saying that right, which is really powerful again. So I always recommend when you're eating food, you should really be able to smell it, right? It should be aromatic. So oregano, basil, thyme, rosemary, these types of things are great on savory dishes. So if you're making meat, vegetables, great herbs to be able to utilize. They're also antimicrobial and they're carminatives. Carminatives mean they help to modulate intestinal contractions. So they help move things through your intestines more effectively, help limit the amount of gas, bloating, cramping. And so we want to be utilizing these herbs with our meals. So that's fantastic. Turmeric has curcumin, right? Curcumin studied to have an autophagy enhancing effect. And there's actually over 300 different bioactive compounds in turmeric. Curcumin is just the most well-studied. And really with all these things, we'll isolate one thing 
and we'll do studies on it and we'll find that it has tremendous benefits, but there's actually other things in there too that are beneficial, which is always interesting. Like for example, green tea has theanine, which helps naturally calm you. It naturally relaxes you and helps increase GABA production, which is your calming neurotransmitter, but it also has the caffeine in there and it has epigalactic attention, the EGCG in there, the different polyphenols. Um, you can also find polyphenols like EGCG in chocolate as well, right? So chocolate has similar effects. Theobromide, chocolate has caffeine in it, smaller amounts than coffee, but caffeine naturally stimulates autophagy. So those are the ones that are coming to mind. Ginger's another one, has six shagiol, which has been studied to uh, increase autophagy. So, you know, if you're thinking about different herbs, right? Like, you know, most of the listeners of your show, I'm sure, have heard people talking about things like turmeric and ginger, you know, and all these great herbs. All those herbs are going to help benefit your ability to get into a state of autophagy. And also drinking herbal teas during your fasting window is a great, you know, natural way to enhance the benefits of fasting. So you can get a lot more benefits by adding in those herbal teas, or if you respond well to coffee, drinking some coffee during your fasting window, as long as you don't overexcite your system, those can all be really great benefits to it. There's so much to unpack there. And I, for all the listeners that know, I'm not a coffee drinker and I married probably the only other non-coffee drinker that's an adult. <laughs> and so we have ginger green tea and some days we'll just yeah. actually cut, you know, very micro, I'm married to an engineer, micro thin slices of ginger into the green tea. Mm. And we absolutely love that kind of, that's like part of our ritual in the morning, but you touched on something that I think it's a term that's overused in social media. And so I know that you and I both understand what detoxification means in the body and why so many people have mucked up systems. They're, you know, toxins they're exposed to and, you know, the nutrition or lack thereof that people are consuming. Let's unpack that for a little bit, just to kind of, you know, reemphasize why this is so important, why it's so important to support the detoxification processes that should function optimally in our bodies. I mean, our bodies are designed to function that way, but because of our lifestyle, food choices, et cetera, really get messed up and misaligned. For sure. Well, you know, we're always taking in chemicals and more chemicals now than ever before because we're taking them in in our air, our water, our food. So most people hear about things like GMOs, pesticides, herbicides. I mean, there's tons of studies out there talking about pesticide and herbicide exposure being linked to cancer, being linked to infertility, you know, a whole number of different issues. And, you know, certainly a high dose exposure can literally, I mean, turn on cancer right almost right away. You know, for certain individuals, it's like a high dose, high blast of radiation, just massive onslaught to the system. But low doses over time also are going to activate abnormal gene production. They're going to cause DNA damage, massive oxidative stress in the system. So we're being exposed to these things, not to mention the fact that, you know, there's heavy metals all over the place. You know, there's amalgam fillings, silver fillings are loaded with mercury, for example. They used to have lead in paint. You know, people still are consuming lots of foods out of aluminum cans, for example, aluminum's mm -hmm. leaching in. I mean, so we can go on and on about different exposure tools. I think the biggest thing that we all have to understand is we're all being exposed. I mean, I've got an air purifier, I've got a water purifier, which is really smart things to do. I live in more of a country setting out here. That's also a great health benefit, right? Not being in kind of a urban area, you're away from a lot of the pollutants, but yet still I'm being exposed to a lot of things. And so it's very important to have a daily habit, daily ritual that helps my body's detoxification systems. All of our bodies, we're always trying 
to eliminate as much of these toxins as possible. They just have to have the right environment. And so what happens is when we're eating all day, we are activating more insulin. And insulin, as I talked about before, is a storage hormone. So it's telling the body to store, 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 shuts down drainage pathways, detoxification systems in our body. So they slow down and we're storing more things. Now, where do we typically store toxins? We typically store them in our fat cells, okay? Fat cells are kind of storage areas for things. And so if we're being exposed to a lot of things and we're constantly turning on insulin, we're gonna end up storing a lot of toxins in our fat. Now, when we start to do intermittent fasting, that's the best way to suppress insulin. So, you know, low carb diets will get insulin down, exercise gets insulin down. And then fasting, we have very low states of insulin. When insulin goes down, we're starting, we're able to start to detoxify. Now, we could talk about system-wide detoxification, like activating our lymphatic system, our liver, our kidneys, our gut, right? We need to be sweeping things out. We should be moving our bowels at least once, if not two to three, maybe even four times a day, depending on how much food we're consuming um, in order to really get these toxins out of our gut, which is a great way to detoxify. We also can detoxify through breathing, believe it or not. It's respiration is actually where we move most of the toxins out on a daily basis. So good breathing habits, super important exercise, obviously helps increase the amount of breathing. And so we're, we're pushing out more toxins when we do that. Sweating. So, you know, whether it's through exercise or being in like a, a sauna, infrared sauna, for example, great way to flush out more toxins. And you got to pee your way to good health, right? I always tell clients that I'm like, you know, you got you to make sure you're peeing your way to good health. You know, typically I have them drinking a lot of water and they're like, this is great. I feel so much better, but I've got to go to the bathroom every hour. I'm like, you know, that's actually a good sign. Like, honestly, if you can go two hours without having to pee, it's a sign you're not drinking enough water, right? Like you should literally, other than at night while you're right. sleeping, but during the day, you should be urinating every two hours or so. And that's good. That means you're sweeping things out through your system. So that's all important. Now, what's cool about fasting is it really helps activate intracellular detoxification. Mm -hmm. Because as important as a system-wide detoxification is, where we're talking about all these major organ systems, right? The colon, the liver, the kidneys, respiratory system, how these things are all moving toxins out. We are going to accumulate toxins inside of our cells as well. And we're also going to have a lot of oxidative stress that damages and creates dysfunctional components of our cell. And so we've got to turn that over. And that's where, where fasting really comes in. It creates an environment with low insulin. And when we have low insulin, it turns on key signaling pathways that then go in and break down old damaged mitochondria, old damaged cellular organelles and take that trash out, right? And at the same time, repair and create newer, healthier mitochondria, new healthy Golgi apparatus, endoplasmic reticulum, all these protein components of the cell that are critical for cellular energy production and all the key components of what a cell does on a you know a moment to moment basis. And so we're repairing it, we're creating like a new, young, healthy, vibrant cell basically from the inside out. And so, and that's actually very energy conserving to do that. If we have to kill an old cell and replace it with a new stem cell, it's actually more energy demanding. So our body, as long as the cell is at a level, like the components in there are at a degree where the body says, okay, this cell can still be repaired. Then it's going to go in and try to repair it. Once it gets to the point where the cell is so damaged and what we call senescent, so old and decayed, 
Okay, it's still functioning and doing things, just these things are not good. For example, immune cells that are senescent create more inflammation. They drive up inflammation. They damage and attack normal tissue, right? Autoimmunity is very much linked to an overabundance of senescent immune cells, right? So when we have these nascent dysfunctional cells, we either have a choice, let's repair them from the inside out, or let's get rid of them and create new stem cells to replace them. Fasting creates the environment where we're able to do that. If we're eating throughout the day, we're never in an environment where we're able to do that. We can never heal and detoxify from the cellular level. And so we just continue to build up all these damaged dysfunctional cells and dysfunctional cellular debris until all of a sudden we, you know, we just feel awful right? And our systems start to shut down. And, you know, you look at things like Alzheimer's disease, dementia, Parkinson's disease, these neurodegenerative conditions. Our brain is outside of our sex organs. So outside of our ovaries and our testes, the brain is the most mitochondrial rich organ of our body. There's something like 10,000 mitochondria per cell of our brain, as opposed to like our muscle cells, which are about a thousand mitochondria per cell, Our liver is, I think, around 3,000, and our heart is about 5,000 mitochondria per cell. So the more that these cells depend on mitochondria, those are the cells that when we don't activate autophagy and repair these mitochondria, those are the areas that are oftentimes the ones that are going to, we're going to notice the symptoms, right? So when we're younger, when we don't have good repair mechanisms, And our brain starts to build up these dysfunctional cells, these senescent cells. We notice it as things like depression, anxiety, brain fog, just poor mental clarity, poor memory. And then over time, we continue to build these cells up and we end up with memory loss, right? Cognitive decline, dementia, Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's, you know, along the way for Parkinson's, people start to notice maybe tremors or just a slowness in moving, right? These are all kind of the early onset symptoms. But by that point, there's just an, a massive overload of senescent neuronal cells in the, that are built up in the brain. I think it's really important and especially telling, you know, given the climate that we are living in right now, and I'm not referring to the pandemic, I'm just talking about the metabolic inflexibility, metabolic disease. There was a recent research article that I read that talked about how our brains, especially our brains, you know, beyond middle age. So, you know, 60s, 70s and beyond when this is when we typically will see people developing a lot of these neurodegenerative diseases are really made in our 30s, 40s and 50s. So if you're listening and you're in the 30s, 40s and 50s, it is so critically important to be taking care of your brain and being mindful of your brain. And that could be as simple as avoiding insulin resistance. It could be as simple as fasting, even if you're not doing it every single day, just making better food choices. Now, I want to pivot just a little bit. There's two other areas I want to touch on based on feedback from listeners and followers on social media, things that people wanted me to ask you about. What are the, some of the common fasting mistakes you see with your own clients or you know, in your social media content? Because I'm sure you get lots of questions or questions that people will ask after you know, your podcast episodes. What are the most common things you see people doing incorrectly? Yeah, it's a good question. And I would say it's actually changed over the years. I would say right now, the biggest mistake is people think it's an all or none process, right? Like you either fast every single day, you do intermittent fasting every day, or you're a failure basically, Mm -hmm. right? That's not the case, right? And so, you know, if you feel great doing it, doing a 16 hour fast, 18 hour fast every day, great, do it every day. And until all of a sudden you notice you're not feeling great, right? That's fine. And especially 
you know, most men can do that and mm-hmm. get away with it. What I find is that, you know, the thin, lean, very active, high achieving female, right? During her menstrual cycle, they, re- they tend to really struggle that. I mean, that's because their body's really sensitive. They have a certain threshold for how much body fat they can have. And once they get under that threshold, then the body starts shutting down fertility hormones. And when your estrogen goes down, you're not going to feel good as a woman, your progesterone, when those things go down, you're not going to feel good. And you could lose your hair, for example, Mm -hmm. feel depressed, really lethargic, lose your sex drive, right? All these different things that, you know, we don't want to experience. And that's because the body's starting to go into hibernation mode because again, it thinks it's in a time of famine Mm -hmm. and you need to hunker down. And so it's really important that you're not thinking about fasting from that perspective. This is something that kind of like exercise, there are some people that metabolically, they just, you know, they're really resilient and they can exercise every single day and feel great. Other people, and it can change depending on what else is going on in your season, right? Like when I was, you know, 26, 27, I was exercising every single day and I felt great. I had healed my irritable bowel, felt fantastic, right? I was doing that every day, felt great. Then we had twin boys and I wasn't getting much sleep and I thought I could do that and completely tanked, right? And so depending on your sleep, your stress, that's going to help you understand how much stress you can handle. And fasting is a stressor. It's a stressor on the body because the body needs, you know, it needs to create energy, whether it's taking it from your own body fat, from amino acids within the cells, going through that process of autophagy or getting it from your diet. It needs to continually produce energy. So you may start like for a lot of people, I will start them with a 12 hour fast between their last meal and their first meal, get really good at that. And then we'll bump it up to about 14 hours. And I find that 14 hours is pretty easy. Because if you just start your day with drinking water, we're all dehydrated when we first wake up. So hydrate well, and that naturally suppresses hunger. And for most people, they notice they can go to about that 14 hour mark and then they start noticing the hunger. So like, oh yeah, 14 hours and I I eat my meals in a 10 hour window, shouldn't be an issue. So then what we'll try to do is really prime the system and we'll stress the system to go up to about 16 hours, but only doing it two days a week, non-consecutive days. Like for example, a Monday and a Friday. So that way you've got recovery time in between because it is going to be a stressor on your body until you get acclimated to it, until you build up the metabolic machinery to use your own body fat, to get amino acids from your cells, right? This is a process you got to train your body and body knows how to do it. But if it hasn't been used to doing it, it doesn't have the machinery to do it, right? So you train it by going into that environment for a short period of time the body starts to acclimate to get better at handling that stressor and it gets better at it. And then over time it becomes easier, right? And so we'll do it two days a week. If the person feels good in that, we might go to three times a week, like every other day, for example. And if they still feel great, we can experiment doing it maybe five days a week or six days a week. And for most females, unless they're very overweight, usually I'll hold it to about five or six days a week and then do one day a week where it's more of like that 12 to 14 hour fast, kind of mm-hmm. like what you're doing. And then eating, you know, three really good meals throughout the day, getting, you know, a good amount of calories, good amount of protein there, you know, kind of that feast day or, you know, whatever you want to call it. And that tends to work really, really well. Right. And so again, going through kind of this feast famine cycling process. So I would say that's one of the big mistakes. And then outside of that, moving your bowels, right? So if people are not moving their bowels in the morning, when they first get up, fasting is going to be a lot harder. So your colon is most active between 6 a.m. and 9 a.m. 
So you naturally have peristalsis, which is muscle contractions going on in your gut between that period of time. And your vagus nerve is your key nerve, parasympathetic nerve, it's a cranial nerve, comes down from your brain, goes all the way down into your heart, your lungs, your gut. In fact, vagus is actually Latin for wanderer. It's the longest nerve in the body, you know, goes a longest cranial nerve for sure. It goes all the way down into the gut and stimulates the gut contractions. Now the vagus nerve is also a parasympathetic nerve, meaning that it helps activate a relaxation response in our body. And it can become more active when we do things to help facilitate a relaxation response. There are several ways we can do it. Deep breathing, for example, is a way to help stimulate the vagus nerve. Drinking water, actually, kind of just moving the palate that way helps stimulate the vagus nerve. There are other strategies as well that aren't necessarily relaxing, like singing loud, for example, and gargling. <laughs> but we need some vagus nerve activation in order to really do that. So I'll tell people, you know, start your day, drink water, warm lemon water, for example. Warm water is actually the best way to stimulate the vagus nerve. Warm water is a great way to get your colon moving. So herbal teas, you could just do warm lemon water, you know, how, whatever you want to do, coffee, all those things can help with, again, getting that peristalsis, but moving the bowels in the morning is so critical. If you do not do that, you're going to end up with basically putrefaction. So the feces is going to putrefy because it's sitting in the colon for a long period of time. Like you should move everything out of your system within at the max 24 hour period. So, you know, if I ate dinner last night and finished dinner by 7 p.m., the waste from that should be out of my body by 7 p.m. tonight. If it's not, it's putrefying. We're releasing, you know, tremendous amounts of chemical compounds, toxic compounds. We're creating a breeding ground for pathogens, bad bacteria, microorganisms, and we're amplifying the stress response in our system, right? So we're actually creating more stress, more inflammation in our body. And that can also trigger cravings. I know if I don't clear my bowels well, I find it a lot harder to fast. And a lot of people do. So starting your day, hydrating, deep breathing, getting the warm water in, really powerful ways. You can also actually help activate the vagus nerve by kind of massaging like right behind kind of your jaw and your ear, right in this area. And my friend, uh, Jody Cohen, I don't know if you know her, but she's an essential oils expert. She actually has a parasympathetic, her company's Vibrant Blue right. Oils. Yeah, you're familiar with that? So she yeah. has a parasympathetic blend. So it's, um, I believe it's lime and clove, right? And so she says, you know, just put that in and massage. I got this idea from her, this area right here, right? And I've been doing that with my wife because when, especially when we get pregnant, especially as they enter into like that third trimester, everything's like so compressed. In there. <laughs> it can be hard, right? So um, vagus nerve activation can really help, but that's going to help relax you. It's going to help calm you. And at the same time, move the bowels going to really make fasting easier. Outside of that, consuming enough trace mineral rich foods, right? Not consuming, you know, staying away obviously from processed foods, eating real whole foods and particularly trace mineral rich foods, because when your insulin is lower, you excrete more sodium. So when you're, you know, the typical average Americans on a high carbohydrate diet, so they have high insulin. And so for those individuals, they're retaining sodium and that can be a contributor to high blood pressure, a lot of different issues. But when you fast and ideally make the change, the diet changes, like you talk about Cynthia, starting to go more lower carb, you know, then your insulin's going to go down and now you start to excrete more sodium and more minerals. And so you actually need more, you need to replace those. So you can get them from real foods, celery, cucumbers, 
dark green leafy vegetables, very rich in trace minerals, including sodium, grass-fed meats, wild-caught fish, seaweed, right? Great source, avocados, olives. These are all great foods that are nutrient-dense, rich in trace minerals, and salt your foods. Use a good quality sea salt or like a Himalayan or Redmond's Real Salt, something like that. And you don't have to oversalt it, but just salt it to your taste. Don't be afraid of salt. That's super important as well. For some individuals, just taking a little bit of salt in their water also while they're fasting can make a huge difference. I've seen that for a lot of people, make a really big difference. They have less brain fog. They feel more energetic while they're fasting. It's easier for them to fast longer. If you're trace mineral deficient or if you've excreted too much sodium, especially if you're trying to practice, like I was talking about drinking a lot of water, which drinking a lot of water can really help move the bowels, right? If you're having trouble there, drinking, you know, 24, 32 ounces of water in the first hour, hour and a half will definitely help you move your bowels, but it can also drain some of your minerals. So taking a little bit of salt with that can help. And so anyways, those are probably the biggest things that I'm seeing that would be beneficial for people. No, that's so helpful on so many levels. And a good friend of mine who's a physician said recently, you know, we don't acknowledge how critically important it is for babies to poop and sleep. And the same applies to adults. Like we don't realize how, if you can do those two things regularly, sleep well and poop every day, you're going to feel like a completely different person. For sure. Yeah. I could have mentioned sleep too. That's so critical as well. Yep. (laughs) Well, and I, it's interesting because on many levels, I always say, if you have trouble sleeping, don't add intermittent fasting because it's another hormetic stressor. If you're already sleeping well and you add in intermittent fasting and your sleep goes south, then we have to kind of dial things back. But I always, you know, kind of think about sleep as a barometer of how well you're responding to your day-to-day existence, but also the fasting mechanisms. I want to touch on one last area before that we're going to do one quick commercial break. Do you find yourself struggling to get a good night's sleep? If so, you may be dealing with a hidden mineral deficiency. It is not at all uncommon in perimenopause and menopause to deal with sleep challenges. And we know that one of many contributory reasons for poor sleep can be a reduction in specific minerals that help regulate sleep quality, including magnesium, which is involved in GABA, which is our body's main calming neurotransmitter. We also know that we need potassium to create melatonin. And this is a hormone that is a master antioxidant, but is also utilized to help induce sleep. We also think about things like zinc, which can balance excitatory neurotransmitters like glutamate. And if it's overactive, meaning if your glutamate levels are too high, it can prevent your brain from becoming more relaxed and inducing sleep. And lastly, selenium increases both our deep sleep and sleep duration. All these minerals matter a lot for sleep and any imbalances or deficits can have a major impact on the quality of sleep you get each night. And that's why I love Beam Minerals. They offer a full spectrum mineral supplement that gives you every essential mineral your body needs in the right doses, all in a highly absorbable liquid form. All you do is take a shot of beam minerals about an hour before bed. Don't worry, it tastes like water and you'll replenish all of your body's minerals in about 30 seconds and give your brain what it needs for deep restorative sleep. I've been using this product over the last several months. I've really been impressed with the improvement in my sleep metrics, which I like to share on social media with my followers. And if you want a simple way to improve your sleep, head over to www.beamminerals.com and use code 
Cynthia for 20% off your first order. That's www.bminerals.com and use code Cynthia for 20% off your first order. Today's podcast is sponsored by NutriSense. It combines cutting edge technology and human expertise so you can see how your body responds to different types of nutrition, stress, exercise, sleep, and where you are in your menstrual cycle in real time. And by pairing a continuous glucose monitor with their app and expert nutritional guidance, NutriSense can help you reach your health goals. And the best part is it's not just a program where they send you the CGM and you have to figure it out on your own. Each subscription plan includes one month of free expert nutritionist support. Your nutritionist will work with you one-on-one interpreting your data and providing customized advice to help you reach your health goals. The last time I had my CGM on, my registered dietitian and I troubleshooted over some specific concerns that I had. And whether you're aiming to lose weight, stabilize your energy, or just feel better overall, NutriSense offers the guidance and support you need. And lasting sustainable change takes time and can be achieved through a longer term subscription. That's why I encourage my patients and clients to consider three, six, or 12-month subscriptions where it's actually less expensive and allows you to not only achieve your goals, but also to ensure that you stick to your healthy lifestyle for the long term. As I've mentioned before, I have found the CGMs I have used through NutriSense to be incredibly insightful, specifically to carbohydrate tolerance. I would not have known that plantains spiked my blood sugar without this information. It's also been hugely helpful for tailoring to workouts and sleep quality. And so for me, even though I am metabolically healthy, I find the insights to be particularly helpful to tailor my lifestyle changes to my blood sugar. Visit NutriSense.io slash EWP and use the code E. WP for $30 off plus one month of free nutritionist support. Be sure to let them know you're a listener of the Everyday Wellness Podcast when they ask you how you heard about them. This is one of my favorite ways to take care of my health and one of my top recommendations for all of my patients and clients. We're back. The other question that I was getting was, what are your thoughts on fasting variations, especially as it pertains to women? I know we touched on this a little bit, But I know when we're looking at cycling women, women who are still in their fertility years, and I would say, you know, anyone that's south of 40 years old, because in our forties, we're really, our eggs are as old as we are. And that's, you know, the kind of prime season for perimenopause. But when we're looking at women still in their really fertile years, looking at their menstrual cycle, looking at, you know, when they should ideally be fasting versus when they should back off from fasting. What is your philosophy here? I know in your book, you've got a lot of great information, but I know that our listeners would definitely appreciate getting your input as well. Yeah, for sure. So if you're a woman, you're going through your menstrual cycle, it is a really good idea to chart your menstrual cycle. And that just gives you a lot of biofeedback on your own health. And so it's a really good idea to get familiar with, okay, day one is your first day of menstruation. Typically day 14 is your day of ovulation where the egg drops, most fertile in that period of time, you know? And so understanding that those two things is critical. So about the week before you menstruate, okay, there's a big hormonal flux that takes place, right? And you need more free hormones, right? And so what happens is when you have, so we want to establish a baseline of 
pretty good insulin sensitivity to begin with, right? So low carb dieting. So somebody that's really insulin resistant, this doesn't apply as much to because they're already insulin resistant. However, once you've been doing some of these protocols, right? Exercising, you know, eating well, if you're a lean, typically a lean female, right? That's health conscious. You're probably fairly well insulin sensitive. So if that's the case, then doing too much fasting is going to lower your insulin too much and you're not going to get the amount of free estrogen, progesterone, the different hormonal flux that you need to really menstruate and to ovulate effectively. So there are certain times where, you know, we, we need higher amounts of insulin in order to activate more free hormones. So the week before you menstruate is one of those weeks. So that's the week that most women notice more cravings, for example. I mean, there's a reason for that, right? Body's giving you signals. And so that's super important. So during that period of time, I don't recommend other than maybe like a 12 to 14 hour fast. I think that's fine. It's also a good time to eat more carbohydrates, healthy carbohydrates, ideally like sweet potatoes, carrots, beets, you know, all your root vegetables that are nutrient dense. That's a great time. Fruit, lots of berries, you know, oranges, apples, right? So getting a lot of nutrients during that period of time, a lot of antioxidants, a lot of phytonutrients that are in those things and the carbohydrate stimulation as well is really good. More protein as well can be really good. You can dial back the fat a little bit during that window. And then also like right before ovulation is a good idea too. So somewhere around like day 12 or so, good time to throw in like a high carb day, you know, with healthy carbs again. Right. So I'm not talking about like eating a bunch of French fries. Right. <laughs> so good sources, good nutrient dense sources, you know, day 12 through 15 or so, you know, typically I'm recommending a little bit more of that. Now, once you start menstruating, that's actually a good time to go back into fasting and low carb. So that's when you can start to dial down inflammation you're already shedding. And so you've gone through that. Now, you know, the blood's coming out and you can start to, you know, enhance the healing process by going low carb and doing more intermittent fasting. Or if you want to do an extended fast, that's typically a good time to do it. And that's going to help reduce unwanted menstrual symptoms, right? So the cramping, all that kind of stuff. A lot of women notice that they, when they're doing intermittent fasting, lower carb during that period of time, they just have less of the symptoms that take place during that menstrual cycle, you know, that when they start to bleed. So that can be really helpful there too. So typically, and then right after ovulation, again, you know, somewhere around, you know, let's say day 16, day 17, good period of time at right after ovulation to go back to doing intermittent fasting for a week. And then, you know, right at that end of your cycle. So you're in that last week before you start menstruating. So again, now going back to more carbs. And that's a great way to do it on, you know, the regular 28 day cycle to where you're getting the benefits of both. You're maintaining really good insulin sensitivity by doing your intermittent fasting and low carb diet for roughly, you know, about like somewhere around 20 of those days, but then you're also implementing feasting some higher carb days, right. To activate the hormones and get enough free hormones during roughly about eight days out of the month, you know, or eight days out of the 28 day cycle to get the right release of those fertility hormones. Yeah. And my philosophies are very aligned with what you just shared. And, and I think that that if women are able to kind of, you know, at least the five to seven days preceding when their menstrual cycle starts, if they make those changes, they're not fasting, they're upping their carbohydrates. They oftentimes will tell me that they feel so much better. Their PMS is yeah. improved. They're sleeping better. They're not having, you know, GI disturbances. You know, a lot of times women get loose bowels before preceding their menstrual cycle. And so 
I want to make sure that people go out and purchase your book, which I think is a really great compilation. It's really easy to read. You've got great research in there. Tell the listeners how to connect with you. You have incredible, you know, podcasts and resources on your website, how to connect with you. Where's the best place to reach you on social media? I'm not sure where you're most active. I'm not sure if you're more on Instagram or more on Twitter or a little bit of Facebook, but let everyone know how to connect with you, how to get your book. Yeah, for sure. You know, my website's drjockers.com. You could find a link for my book there or just go on Amazon, type in the fasting transformation or type in my name and you'll find my book. I also have another book, The Keto Metabolic Breakthrough, which is another book really teaching people how to get keto adapted, right? How to get fat adapted and then how to carb cycle appropriately, right? Kind of some of the things we talked about today. So anyways, those are my main books that are out there. And then, yeah, I've got a great podcast of Dr. Jogger's Functional Nutrition Podcast. I'm most active on Facebook and YouTube as well. And then also on Instagram. So just look me up, Dr. David Jockers on those sites. Well, thank you again for your time and good luck with your, you know, your mentioned your wife is imminently getting ready to have your fourth child. And so it's yeah. an exciting time for you all. Thank you so much. Yeah, absolutely. We're going to do a home birth. It's going to be amazing. And so we're super excited about it to meet our little baby girl. Awesome. Thanks for listening to Everyday Wellness. If you loved this episode, please leave us a rating and review, subscribe, and remember, tell a friend. And if you want to connect with us online, visit the link in the show notes. Just as you carefully choose the cut of meat or freshness of produce that you cook at home, you should carefully choose chemical-free cookware that provides a healthy and safe cooking experience. The materials in 360 cookware are safe, sustainable, and of the highest quality. Their cookware is 100% free from any toxic chemicals as the company produces quality stainless steel cookware and bakeware without added chemicals, and all are manufactured in the United States. It's also the leading manufacturer that equips kitchens with cookware and bakeware that are free of all of the toxic chemicals and coatings, including PFAS, Teflon, and ceramic. And the best thing is that when used properly, the product's construction provides nonstick properties in a product that can be passed down through generations. Go to www.360cookware.com and use code CYNTHIA20 for 20% off your first order. Again, that's 360cookware.com and use code CYNTHIA20 for 20% off your first order. We've been using their products over the last several months and have really been pleased with not only the durability, but ease of cleanliness.